following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Let's open our time in God's Word with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to worship you in song and the singing of praises. I pray that it would be a soothing aroma, acceptable sacrifice before you, Lord. I pray, Father God, for this opportunity to worship you in the preaching of your word. Give us a soft and tender heart, Father, as we approach your word. May this time be for your glory and the exaltation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of our message this morning is Striving for a Christ-Exalting Perspective. Striving for a Christ-Exalting Perspective. And if you can please turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And I want to read from verses 12 through 18. So if you can stand with me, if you are able for the reading of the Word of God. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Please have a seat. I'm sure you would agree that there are certain experiences in life that can be very, very perspective-shaping experiences. Experiences that contribute to your outlook or your view on life. And for me, one of those significant experiences happened about three years ago. I had the opportunity after 25 years to return to Mexico City, where I had witnessed the murder of my mother at the age of seven. Some of you heard my testimony last year. It had been 25 years since I had been back there to Mexico City. And I was working for a ministry at the time that basically focused on uh, working with gospel-focused, gospel-centered churches in other countries, providing things like food, clothing, vitamins, as well as um, biblical training for the pastors so that they might reach out to their communities with the gospel message. And the first night we arrived uh, to Mexico, we had set the itinerary six months ahead of time, And we're having dinner with this group of pastors in Mexico City that we decided to partner with. And during dinner, one of the pastors took a very, very particular special interest in me. Uh, He began asking me personal questions about my personal testimony, my background, the community in Mexico City where I had grown up, and um, and what had transpired in Mexico City that had led me to to, uh, the U.S., And I remember sharing this information with him concerning my background, very suspicious, however, thinking to myself, why is he so eager to know all of this information about me? The next morning, first on the itinerary, was a visit to this particular pastor's church. So three cars, caravan full of pastors, and we head out to this community where his church was located. And he insisted that I ride with him in the same car. And on the way to his church, he began talking to me extensively about the history of Mexico City, his church, and the area, the community that he had been ministering for 25 plus years. And the more he talked, the more I became fearfully intrigued by what he was telling me concerning this community, and the more familiar the community became that I was seeing on the way there. After about an hour of this, I'll never forget it. He suddenly stopped the car, and the other two cars stopped as well, and I literally froze there. Because there, just five minutes away, 
was his church two or three blocks away, right smack in the middle of the community where I had grown up some 25 to 30 years earlier. I had not been there since the murder of my mother. And I remember just being in a daze, getting out of the car and walking out to a very familiar intersection that brought back many childhood memories. On one corner was the preschool where 27 years earlier I, was, I had dropped off my two little brothers many times to go to school. On the other corner, a restaurant, a taco place where my mom and I actually used to sit down and, and eat together. Another corner across the street was the elementary school that I had attended. And then the other corner was the police station where my mother's murder had initially been reported to. And it was still there. I couldn't believe it. Here I was once again visiting my very childhood roots 25 plus years later. And it was surreal. And as I was looking out at that intersection, that just brought back many, many childhood memories. The pastor came over, put his arm on my shoulder and said, Kempis, yesterday at dinner, the reason I kept asking you questions about your background, where you grew up in Mexico City and other questions, is because where you grew up is where I have been ministering for all these years. And I don't want you to forget and lose perspective as to where you came from and the journey that God has taken you on. And now God, by His grace, is using you and these brothers coming here from the U.S. to help equip churches for the sake of the gospel. It was amazing. Experiences like these, beloved, are perspective-shaping, are they not? I'm sure you would have examples of similar things. And as I begin to reflect upon these la- the last 25 years, I often struggle to understand the terrible events of my childhood. But now, through that experience, God had allowed for me to see the big picture, the grand supreme purpose of advancing His cause in Mexico City by using measly instruments like us, like me. It reminded me that our lives, beloved, are a living sacrifice to be used by God for the advancement of the gospel. We are expendable, mere human instruments. And we all need to be reminded of the big picture. Because it is so easy, I'm sure you would agree, for all of us to lose focus of what matters most. Amen? It's so easy to lose focus of our Lord Jesus, our precious Lord Jesus, and the need that we have to proclaim His name to a lost world that needs to hear the hope of Christ. To be seen, Christ formed in one another. Believers being built up into the image of Christ. It's so easy to lose focus on making disciples, on gospel progress. Maintaining a biblical perspective in the Christian life, though, is very difficult, isn't it? To consistently view what happens in our Christian lives as an opportunity for the gospel to progress, as opposed to viewing circumstances and relational challenges as hindrances, obstacles, nuisances to our lives. It is a challenge. This is why I have titled our sermon, Striving for a Christ-Exalting Perspective. Because viewing life clearly through gospel-focused lenses is not automatic or easy, is it? It is not. It is easy, yes, to have joy and view life and ministry through God's lenses when things are going easy, when things are calm and comfortable. Piece of cake. However, not so easy to maintain a biblical perspective, a Christ-honoring, Christ-exalting perspective when things are difficult, when difficult circumstances hit our lives, when challenging relationships are ever before us. It's not so easy. We feel so surrounded by the difficulties of life that it's hard to see how God could be using our circumstances for His glory and our good. So having a Christ-exalting perspective where Christ's name and His purposes are supreme is not an easy thing, is it? My challenge for us this morning is this. Amidst whatever circumstances God has you in, family trials... Physical trials, loss of a job, relational difficulties. Amidst whatever circumstances and challenges and relationships that you have, I want to ask you this. Is the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ at the center of those issues? Is exalting Christ and honoring the Lord your main priority? 
the utmost priority of your life? Does it drive everything that you do as you anticipate the king's return? How you respond to life's trials? How you respond to other believers and circumstances and trials that you might be having with others? Does this gospel focus shape how we respond to circumstances and how we treat one another, beloved? If there was ever a man who understood the value of maintaining a gospel-focused, Christ-exalting perspective, it was the Apostle Paul. He understood something of what it meant to maintain a Christ-centered outlook on life. And it wasn't like he was devoid of difficult circumstances or challenging people in his life and ministry. No. If there was ever a man who understood pain and affliction and disappointment, it was this faithful man. And this morning, I want us to learn some lessons from him in verses 12 through 18. And glean from Paul's perspective amidst difficult circumstances and challenging relationships. Because he had them. Paul had founded this little church some 10 years before writing this little letter. And from the very beginning, Paul and these Philippians developed a very special bond. Paul loved these Philippians and they loved him. In fact, by the time that Paul writes this letter, Paul and the Philippians have partnered together for the gospel for a decade. The Philippian church held a very special place in Paul's heart. And you see in the pages of Philippians as you read them, the intimate affection that Paul had for these Philippians. He bleeds that all over the pages of this letter. He loves them and they love him. But now for approximately three years, they have not heard as to how Paul is doing. They know he's in prison in Rome. They know he's awaiting a decision from Nero about his case that would either lead to his execution or his release. And being so concerned about him in the ministry of the gospel, they even send one of their own Epaphroditus to visit Paul in Rome. That was a 30, 40 plus day journey. It wasn't like he could fly Delta Airlines. Okay, He had to take a ship to get there. Almost dying from sickness on his way, Epaphroditus finally gets to Paul, and Paul finds out how the Philippian church is doing. Paul writes to them for a number of reasons, but I want to highlight one of those reasons for you this morning, because I think it's the overarching one. One of the reasons is to address the beginning signs of division amongst them. We see this in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, how he explicitly exhorts them to unity and oneness. But though Paul exhorts them to unity, it's interesting how he does it. If you read the letter repeatedly of Philippians, and I'm sure some of you have, one of the things you'll you'll see are the numerous references, the plethora of references to the gospel, to Christ, to Jesus, to the Lord. Over and over again, some 50 plus times. Amazing. Repeatedly, it seems that, what, that Paul wants to direct the focus of this Philippian church on the gospel and the partnership that they share in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It seems that at the heart of their struggles, listen to this, at the heart of their struggles with one another in getting along was that to some extent or another, they had lost focus or perspective on the gospel. They needed a reminder of the basis of their unity, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want us to see this morning in these verses, verses 12 through 18, is that Paul instructs the Philippians to focus on the gospel by his very example. Amidst the experiences that he's having, amidst his circumstances, and amidst even relationship challenges with others. Paul's perspective was a gospel-focused, Christ-exalting perspective. And we see this amazing perspective show itself in the very way that he maintains the advance of the gospel as the focal point of his ministry, right smack in the middle of the difficult circumstances that he's experiencing. And secondly, he keeps focused on the gospel even when experiencing challenges in his relationships with fellow brothers in Christ. In verses 15 through 18. And beloved, I would challenge us this morning. If we are to be people who honor and exalt the name of Christ, we must strive to do the same. In our difficult circumstances, amidst challenging relationships, Christ must be supreme in everything that we do. So this morning, I want to call us to two 
crucial priorities, two crucial priorities in our outlook on life. Two crucial priorities of the gospel-focused, Christ-exalting believer. So that we might be a church that is used by God for the advancement of the gospel in our community, personally, and as a corporate body. Two crucial priorities of the gospel-focused, Christ-exalting believer. First of all, I want you to see that we, as a people of God, must focus on gospel progress amidst difficult circumstances in life. We must focus on gospel progress amidst difficult circumstances. As I mentioned, how easy it is to focus on the right priority when things are calm, right? Very easy. Not so much when things are difficult. But what you find in these verses here is that Paul, Paul's personal report of his present circumstances, beginning in verse 12, is that this man always seemed to thrive in the midst of hardship. So opposite than me. Falling apart when circumstances get difficult. This man thrived in difficulties and suffering. I suppose that in light of his difficult circumstances, Paul could have complained, seized the opportunity to vent. He could have said, can you believe these Romans to these Philippians? Philippians, can you believe these Romans? I have been waiting in this place for a while, wasting my time, waiting for Nero to make up his mind concerning my case. Don't these dudes know that I have things to do, people to see, places to visit? He could have said that. Or he could be depressed, discouraged. He could be despairing. Or he could be talking to the Philippians about how God has abandoned him. He could be resenting God for allowing this in his life. Paul could have wallowed in his circumstances and lost heart. But that's not what he does. I want you to see his perspective amidst his present hardship. Notice what he says in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, brethren is a term of endearment and intimacy. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul's opening words regarding this present situation probably was not what the Philippians were expecting. Contrary to what you guys might think, contrary to what you might be praying about right now, everything is actually quite positive. I would have loved to have been a fly on that wall when they read verses 12 and following. And Paul is so positive about his present imprisonment. I mean, can you imagine the response of the Philippians? Are you kidding me, Paul? Let's rehearse your situation for a little bit. You are imprisoned. You are restricted and confined to a pathetic guest house. The most eminent apostle to the Gentiles. You cannot travel freely as before doing ministry. You can't preach in the synagogues. You can't visit church plants. You can't church plant. You can't train leaders anymore. You can't revisit the people that you have ministered to in the past. You have a Roman soldier chained to you 24-7 every six hours. A new Roman soldier chained to you. No privacy you eat and you drink and you have guests with somebody always there and on top of that there's a strong chance that we're never going to see you again you're going to die and we will never see you again if Nero basically pronounces your execution and Paul says contrary to what you might think Amidst my present affliction, what matters is not my comfort, but that the gospel is advancing. My personal comfort or discomfort matters little. It's inconsequential. Paul doesn't even get into the specifics about how he's doing health-wise or his surroundings. He doesn't even get into those specifics. What he focuses on is on the fact that the the gospel is progressing, that Christ's name is being preached, and we're going to see this here. And the question is this, how could a man have this type of outlook on his circumstances? What was the driving force behind this perspective of Paul amidst his personal affliction? What was it? The answer is this. I want you to listen carefully. Paul's supreme singular passion of life was that Christ would be proclaimed. That the name of Jesus, His precious Jesus, His Lord and His Savior, would be proclaimed and made known to a lost world. 
That was his supreme passion for living. The advancing of the person and work of Christ in the lives of people. His joy and his positive perspective, beloved, listen, was tied not to his circumstances, not to the way that he was treated, but was, it was tied to his consuming passion to see the gospel advance amidst his circumstances. Amazing. And I love the word that he uses here in verse 12, translated progress. It is a word that carries the idea of progressing or advancing in the face of opposition or resistance. The word does not simply describe something in motion, going in one direction or another. The picture was of those who would be sent ahead of an army, cutting down trees and clearing the path so that an army could advance without obstacle or hindrance. What a picture, huh? In other words, the idea has the, the word has the idea of advancing or progressing in the face of opposition or resistance, in spite of danger or distraction. What opposition is Paul presently experiencing? In short, his imprisonment, his freedom's been taken away. At any point he could be executed or released. But what is his response? Paul says, Brethren, I want you to know, contrary to what you might be thinking, rather than me falling apart here in Rome due to my imprisonment, things have actually been quite favorable as it pertains to the gospel. The gospel, our common mission, is advancing. God is winning, Philippians. God is winning. He doesn't even get into his hardships. He's focused on the advance of the gospel. And beloved, what I want to ask you this morning, is your supreme passion the progress and the proclamation of the name of Jesus? Can you, can the words of Paul here resonate with you in your heart? I live to proclaim Christ in proclamation and via my life, the way that I witness for the sake of my Lord. Nothing else trumped this man's vision for his life but the proclamation of the person and the name of Jesus, his precious Jesus. Life for Paul was not about Paul. Life for Paul was exclusively and supremely about one person, and that was Christ. You remember in Acts 9, Paul had a collision with the risen Savior. Remember that? He had a collision with the risen Savior that radically transformed them. Paul was a broken man. He talks about this in Philippians 2. You know what? Look at my, you want to see, look at my credentials? I could boast of the highest credentials in my own religion. But Paul says, you know what? All of that, all of my credentials are nothing, rubbish, human excrement. What matters is that I will get to know my Lord, knowing Christ, proclaiming Christ. Christ mattered to Paul. Christ was everything to Paul. He couldn't help but to talk about Jesus. He expresses his supreme passion for the gospel over and over again to the various churches that he writes to. And I want you to do this. Write these references down as I read them, but I want you to listen and hear some of the statements that Paul makes to various churches concerning his supreme passion in life. And ask yourself, is this my heart? Is this, does this resonate with me? Galatians 2.20, listen to this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Galatians 6.14, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. How passionate was Paul about the gospel? Very passionate. Supremely passionate. He says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. How committed was he to preach the gospel? Listen to 1 Corinthians 9.16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 1.17 he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to what? 
to preach the gospel. Everything for Paul was about Jesus. Nothing else mattered but his precious Savior and Lord, beloved. Nothing else trumped this man's joy. Not his circumstances, not relationships. As long as Christ was proclaimed, he was content and happy. He was joyful. And I ask you this morning, is the gospel of Christ the supreme passion of your life? Can you say like Paul in Philippians 1.21 when he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you say that? Someone has said, quote, Christ is the center and the circumference of our existence. Nothing else matters in life, end quote. Does that resonate with you? Christ is the center and the circumference of my life, of my existence. Nothing else matters. Only Christ brings meaning and purpose to my life. No matter what I'm pursuing in life, no matter what my aspirations are, everything, everything is subjected to the supremacy of Christ. Everything. And that was the heart of this man right here. It was all about Christ. His supreme passion and outlook on life was that Jesus would be made known. He wasn't sitting around saying, Woe is me. Woe is me. The gospel has been imprisoned as I am. Or Lord, I did not sign up for this when I agreed to follow you. I thought you, were, you said there would be no problems and pains and trials and suffering in the Christian life. He doesn't do that. He says, you know what? I want you guys to know that I'm not wallowing. I'm not drenched in self-pity. I'm not whining about my circumstances. I'm not eager to fight for my rights because the Romans are being unjust, making me wait so long. I'm rejoicing in the fact that Jesus is being proclaimed. That's what he says here in the midst of opposition and resistance. And at the end of the day, isn't that what life is about for us as believers? It should be. Christ is everything. Beloved, how easy it is for us to lose sight and focus of the gospel if we're not careful. We're so distracted and preoccupied by the peripheral, by so many pursuits in life, even ministry pursuits, not necessarily keeping Christ and the gospel advancing as the focus of our ministry pursuits. Paul's singular focus was on the gospel progressing amidst his difficult circumstances. And he shows us how this comes to fruition in verses 13 and 14. How was the gospel advancing amidst Paul's difficult circumstances? In verse 13, he tells us that the gospel was advancing from outside the church. How so? In that unbelievers were coming to know the Lord. And in verse 14, he tells us that the gospel was bearing fruit inside the church in that believers were being strengthened and built up in the gospel. They were growing. The Christian army was being strengthened as they watched his example. And I want you to see this, his testimony of gospel progress in verses 13 and 14. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And here it is, verse 13, so that, here's the content of this gospel progress, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Amazing. Stop right there. Here in verse 13, we see that, first of all, the gospel was progressing amidst Paul's difficult circumstances and that the unbelieving world was taking notice of this man who was not imprisoned because of a crime that he had committed he was in prison for preaching this name christ in other words in verse 13 paul tells us that there's some serious evangelization going on amidst his circumstances this is amazing the Praetorian Guard here in verse 13 referred to either a location or a body of soldiers. And I think here, most likely, listen to this, it refers to the distinguished and influential Roman Guard. The Praetorian Guard with a 9,000 plus prominent soldiers directly responsible for guarding and protecting the Emperor's Palace in Rome. These men were not common soldiers. They were the best of the best, the cream of the crop, if you will. They had huge influence in the capital of Rome. Highly influential men. Loyally served the emperor for a long time. Hand-picked. They had a certain level of respect, admiration, and prestige in the palace. 
The Roman people looked up to them. They had a significant level of influence, even in political and social realms. And would you believe it? That some of the members of this Praetorian Guard were the very men that were chained to the Apostle 24-7, every six hours, a new guy chained to Paul, and they could not escape him. What do you suppose Paul was doing with these guys chained to him 24-7, one guy every six hours? What do you suppose? (laughs) Hey, how are the latest Olympic events in Rome going? Maybe that was the topic of conversation. Or, hey, what is the latest Roman fashion trends? Or, wow, you have a cool Roman armor. I doubt it, beloved. I think that what Paul undoubtedly was doing is sharing his testimony concerning his past. Talking about his collision with the risen Savior. He was telling these influential Roman soldiers about Jesus, calling them to repentance and faith in the only one who could deliver them from their sins. That's what he was doing. Paul had had such a tremendous testimony, even as a prisoner, that the vast majority of these prominent, influential Roman guard were well aware of this Christian man, that he was there for the cause, the sake of this man, Jesus. People in the Praetorian God had taken notice of him, that he was on house arrest, not for committing that crime, but because of the name of Jesus. And as he's making this massive impact amidst his present difficult circumstances, even everyone else is taking notice. The word is expanding. Paul is making a huge impact. In fact, in his closing remarks in chapter 4, verse 21, notice what he says to the Philippians. Paul writes, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me, with me greet you. And the saints greet you, and here it is, almost sarcastically, especially those of Caesar's household. Amazing. There is some serious evangelization taking place in the very center of the Roman powerhouse. Can you believe it? People outside the church are being impacted for the progress of the gospel, joining the church despite Paul's difficult circumstances. And then he adds in verse 13, and to everyone else. Not just the Roman guard, others, perhaps officials in the palace, other unbelievers in Rome had become aware of him. The word was getting around. You know what Paul's focus was, in a nutshell? Making disciples. Isn't that what evangelization is? Making disciples? That's what he was doing. His singular mission was on disciple making. That's what he was doing. And we're going to see the other aspect of disciple-making in, cha- in, in verse 14 right now. See, for Paul, he was here on the earth to proclaim Christ. Everything else, present circumstances, occupation, success, popularity, aspirations, pursuits, everything else was peripheral. Everything else for him. We need a serious mindset shift, beloved. I remember a few years ago establishing a relationship with a family who came from Southeast Asia. The, the husband was going to go to seminary. And I remember asking him, Brother, what has been the toughest adjustment that you have had to make since coming into the U.S. from Southeast Asia? And he said, You know what, brother? The most challenging thing has been my observation that here in the U.S., that, that people have here in the U.S. of Christianity, of their main mission on the earth. It's just so different than from, than from I know, what I know in Southeast Asia. He said, in Southeast Asia, our occupation, our profession, whatever we do, you fill in the blank, is basically peripheral and secondary. We are believers. We are Christ proclaimers, he said. We proclaim Christ. We're Christians. And everything else that we do, if we have an occupation, it's for the purpose of working with our own hands, raising support for our families, and for being the purpose of being witnesses for the sake of Christ. But we are believers. Christ is everything. But he says, what I've noticed here in the U.S. is this. Christians, he says, they pursue success. They have an occupation. They have all of those things. You fill in the blank in their pursuits. And that is their main thing. And their Christianity is part-time. He says, it's a side job. We are Christians first in Southeast Asia. And everything else is under the Lordship of Christ. He said, here, Christians are part-time Christians. 
It occurred to me then that I needed a serious mindset shift in my thinking as well. And I think we all need this serious mindset shift, a serious perspective shift. Where rather than Christ being a footnote, beloved, on the thesis of our life, He is the very theme of our life. Right? Too many of us are guilty of giving ourselves for too many causes that are not gospel-focused causes. We live trying to fulfill personal agendas, aspirations, rather than advancing the gospel in people's lives. And Paul lived with a single-minded focus. We see here that Paul's circumstances in no way deterred him from staying focused on his primary mission, and that was to make disciples for the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That was his aim. Now I want you to see in verse 14 that Paul also tells these Philippians that the gospel was progressing not only from the outside in that unbelievers were coming to know the Lord and joining the church, But the gospel was progressing inside the Christian community as well. That is, amongst those who are believers. So there was some serious edification building up going on amidst Paul's imprisonment. Believers were being built up as they witnessed the powerful testimony of this man. And how he was responding joyfully to his trials. Seizing his opportunity to preach the gospel to anyone who would visit him. Including the Praetorian Guard. These Christians were being built up in two ways. He tells us in verse 14. And that most of the brethren, first of all, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. You know what was going on? These believers were watching the testimony of Paul, watching his response, watching his joy amidst his circumstances, and they were growing in their trust and dependence upon the Lord, growing in their conviction that God could be trusted amidst their circumstances. Because they were watching one of their fellow Christian soldiers shining in the midst of his suffering. Amazing. Amazing. They were growing stronger in their faith, depending upon the Lord. But also, these Christians were growing in boldness for the gospel. Notice, they have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. These believers, the language here refers to exceeding courage, greater, new heights, and abundance of courage, he says. So Paul's Paul's comrades in the faith, his fellow Christian soldiers, have reached new heights of gospel boldness. Amazing. As they watch this man's example of joy and boldness in proclaiming the gospel, the believers are growing in momentum to fearlessly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a testimony, huh? The Christian army is growing stronger. Rather than being weakened, the disciples are growing stronger and being edified. So Paul's rejoicing is on the fact that the gospel is progressing on two fronts. There's an evangelistic aspect to this gospel progress. The gospel is being shared, preached. Sinners are being reconciled to God by repenting of their sins, putting their faith in Christ, and Paul rejoices. But there's also an edification aspect to this gospel progress that we see via his example in verse 14. Those who are already believers were growing and being strengthened in their walk with God, learning to trust in God amidst their circumstances, growing as faithful disciples of Christ, being taught to obey all that Christ had commanded them. Amazing. This is what we call the Great Commission, is it not? Disciple-making? Sharing the gospel with Jesus, calling sinners to repentance and faith in Christ, to bow the knee to the Lord and Savior, and entering into a process of being built up and strengthened in the faith. Amen? Paul is, has a singular passion to do, to make disciples. That's it. As simple as that. What about you and me? What circumstances are you chained to, if you will, beloved, in life right now? A difficult family situation? Difficult job environment? Loss of a job? Difficult community where you live? Are you seeing the bigger picture of the gospel? Seizing the opportunity that God has allotted to you wherever He has you right now in life to make disciples? How do you view unfavorable circumstances? Present suffering, present trials... Lord, please get me out of these circumstances. They're uncomfortable. Is that your perspective? 
get me out of this ASAP? Or is it, Lord, I don't quite understand what you're doing right now in my life. As a husband, mother, single person, elderly saint, young person, I don't know everything you're doing right now, Lord, but I trust you. Please show me the lessons that you want me to learn so that I may be more and more conformed to the image of my Jesus. Is that your heart? To be built up in the gospel amidst your present affliction? See, we need, to, we need God's grace to help us have the perspective that God might very well have us in a particular place for this particular time for a very particular purpose, and that is to make the name of His Son known both in proclamation and in the witness that we set before others. Right? It's all about the gospel, beloved. God's purpose in our affliction might be to either use us as instruments of redemption in the lives of others who do not know the Lord, as in Paul's case in verse 13, or God might be using your circumstances or using you as an instrument of inspiration for other believers who are watching you and how you respond to life's trials, as in Paul's case in verse 14. See? Is the gospel and the advance of the gospel your greatest passion amidst your circumstances? For many of us, Christ, we would say, is a huge part of our life. Oh yeah, I follow Christ. I love Christ. But it's Christ plus something else, right? Christ is part of our Christian life. But it's Christ perhaps plus success, money, comfort, personal aspirations, the latest toys, happiness, financial security, financial prosperity. It must be Christ plus nothing, beloved. We are drowning in our human experiences, and to some extent or another, we have lost sight of why we're here personally, individually, and as a church, and that's to exalt the name of Christ. Amen? That is why we are here. To call people to repent and submit themselves to the Lordship of Christ. To use our gifts and our abilities as Christians for the service and edification of the body of Christ. To build up others for the exaltation of Jesus. That is a Christ-exalting perspective, is it not? That's why we're here. This is what life boils down to for us. Not that we be comfortable. Paul wasn't but that people are coming to Christ, that Christians are being discipled, built up, becoming more like Jesus to the exaltation of His name. And Paul relished in his circumstances, even in the midst of suffering, and viewed his present affliction as a prisoner, as an opportunity to proclaim the name of Christ, rather than as a hindrance. See that? Amazing. But the second priority, crucial priority, I want you to see in verses 15 through 18 is this. We must focus on gospel progress amidst challenging relationships. We must focus on gospel progress amidst challenging relationships. There were rivalries similar to our day today going on in Paul's day. There were fellow Christians in and around Rome who were very supportive and viewed Paul's present trial as a prisoner from perhaps different perspectives. Others, not so positive. Some really question why Paul perhaps had appealed to Caesar. Why did he do this? He has eliminated his freedom. He's a proud man. He's wanting notoriety and popularity. Other believers perhaps viewed Paul having appealed to Caesar as an evidence that Paul had done something wrong, landed him in prison. God's judgment was upon Paul. I want you to see how Paul responds to fellow believers who are causing him affliction in these verses. Paul's focus in verses 15 through 18, amidst challenging relationships with other believers, is this focus on the advance of the gospel. It was such a priority to him, even amidst challenging relationships within the Christian community. Do you have those? Challenging relationships amongst brothers and sisters? Anybody? I do. What is your perspective? Is Christ central in, in how you resolve conflicts with other brethren? What is your perspective? Is Christ at the center of those relationships? Paul had challenging relationships. He says about the proud Christians, 
Let's call them that in verse 15. Some, the word some here is referring back to some of the believers of verse 14. Some, to be sure, some of these believers, I'm not kidding. This is absolutely true. Trust me, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife, he says. These believers here are not heretics. They're not unbelievers. Paul, in verse 15, says that they are preaching Christ. Verse 17 says that they proclaim Christ. Verse 18 says that whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. So these Christians here, this, these, this group called some, are not false teachers. It seems that if they were false teachers, Paul would have dealt with them the same way that he did in Galatians 1, 9-11, right? There he pronounces judgment upon those who are preaching another gospel. These are fellow believers, fellow Christian preachers who are taking personal issue with him. And he says they might be doing it from impure motives. They are motivated by envy, preaching Christ from envy or jealousy. Perhaps jealous of Paul's renown. His wonderful ministry, what the Lord has done perhaps. They are jealous of the fact that people know he's in prison for the name of Christ. And notice, this internal jealousy leads them to strife. They are in conflict with Paul. They are trying to do everything they can to discredit him and let others know that they are in opposition to Paul and perhaps his way of doing things. Not only envy and strife, but secondly, if you skip over to verse 17, he says that these Christian leaders are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. The phrase here, selfish ambition, refers to an arrogant spirit of self-seeking that grips them. Rather than from selfless love, these believers are preaching Christ for, from a desire for personal gain. They are selfish in their pursuits. They desire notoriety for self. And they do this because they have a personal beef with Paul. He says in verse 17, They are thinking or supposing to cause me distress in my imprisonment. They want to cause me inner turmoil or grief. They want to hurt me. These Christian brothers have a personal bone to pick with Paul, even amidst preaching Christ. And beloved, the church today, if we're honest, is torn by people full of jealousy and strife, right? Including Christians not always ministering with the best motivations. Rivalries in the church, beloved, don't just exist among big-name evangelicals, but also in many churches like Calvary Bible Church, right? People who are self-serving, who rather than keeping the best interest of the gospel are about popularity, personal agendas, selfish interests, preaching the right message, professing allegiance to the same Jesus, but doing so from the wrong motives. There are many Christians who are competitive, always trying to outdo someone else, stepping on people to get to where they want to get in Christian churches. You know what is one way you can tell if you have lost focus of the gospel? Look at your relationships with the brethren here. Are you consumed with running around tearing others down because in so doing, it makes you feel better? This is the way of the world. Rivalry should not exist or characterize Christians. We need to make sure our motivation, beloved, is to be unified in the precious, pure, unadulterated gospel of Christ. Amen? And if we need to confront error and call out heresy, we'll do it by the strength that God supplies but more often than not, our conflicts are not because of doctrine, infidelity. We give evidence in our lack of relationships, harmony in relationships, and peace in our relationships that we are not keeping Christ at the center of our life if we're running around strifing with everybody. That is not a Christ-exalting perspective on life. We need to understand in a greater way, beloved, the sweet partner- partnership that we have and that we share in the gospel. Amen? We have a beautiful partnership. But I want you to see that there weren't only the proud Christians there, but also the loyal to the gospel, who were committed to the proclamation of Christ, who were supportive of Paul. Paul tells us that there were also the loyal. Some, he says in the latter part of of verse 15, some of these brethren, believers from verse 14, some of those brethren are also preaching Christ from goodwill. That is from the best intentions. To Paul's comfort, there were those who wanted the name of Christ to be known at all costs. 
These believers had a Christ-exalting perspective. He's, notice what he says about them in verse 16. The latter, that is those Christians who preach Christ from goodwill, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. They are motivated by love. And they understand what God is doing. Paul's language here in verse 17 is military terminology. Indicating that Paul is under orders. Paul has been appointed by God. He has orders from the divine general God to be an ambassador for the gospel in chains. Beautiful picture there. And so out of true Christian love, rooted in a passion for gospel progress, these believers... Know that God is using Paul to advance his cause. What side do you fall on under? The proud or the loyal? Are you living with a focus in your relationships on the advance of the gospel, seeking to maintain unity in your relationships for the purpose of the proclamation of Christ? Or are you running around, turning on fires all over the place? Notice what Paul says in Philippians 1.27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing, here it is, firm in how many spirits? One spirit, with one mind, literally one soul, striving together for the faith of the gospel. See that? In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on ten purposes. Is that what he says? How many purposes? One purpose. What purpose is that? The advance and the proclamation of the name of Jesus. Right there. It's all about Him. So here you have, beloved, brothers who are both preaching the gospel, some doing it from goodwill and love, others from jealousy and strife and impure, selfish motives. And you would think that Paul's natural response to these believers would be to take this personally. Why are they attacking me? I don't deserve this. Do they know we're part of the same team? What's the deal? Do they know my credentials? What does he say? Verse 18. Notice the verdict from Paul's mouth. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, in that Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice, he says emphatically. What then, he says? What are we to think about this? So what about these... Fellow preachers who are attacking me. He says, you know what? It doesn't matter what they think about me. I'm not going to take this personally. He says, what matters is that Christ is proclaimed, he says. Be it in pretense, which is a picture of someone wearing a mask to propagate selfish interests. Or be it in truth, from sincere motivations, preaching the genuine gospel message. Be it in pretense or in truth. What matters is that Christ be proclaimed. Amen? And that is what matters in our relationships. Paul had a Christ-exalting perspective concerning his opposition, even from his own brothers in Christ. From our own human, sinful, sinful human standpoint, he has all of the ingredients in here to be bitter and resentful towards his own brothers in Christ. Mark it. Brothers in Christ, fellow believers, preaching the same gospel, part of the same team, love the same Jesus, and yet they are not acting like they love Jesus in their relationship with Paul. They are not acting like they're part of the same team. Paul had perhaps every reason from our sinful human standpoint to be angry, resentful, and bitter, but he was not. What does he say? You know what? Whatever personal issues they have with me, these guys are preaching the same gospel, maybe from impure motives, maybe from a desire to spite me, from rivalry, wanting to hurt me. But at the end of the day, I don't matter. What matters is that Christ is preached. See? That's what matters. The progress of the gospel, that people are being saved from hell and damnation, and that God's army of Christians is growing stronger and stronger and gaining momentum in anticipation of the King's return. Amen? That's what it's all about. Paul's life 
was supremely focused on making disciples. Gospel progress. And he emphatically says in verse 18, And in this, and in that Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. Listen to this. For all of the issues that Paul could have raised to pick a fight with these fellow believers, Paul subordinated himself and personal attacks against him to the greater interests and purposes of Jesus. Amazing. His personal reputation didn't matter. His comfort didn't matter. Popularity, credentials, it didn't matter. What mattered was that Jesus, his precious Jesus, the same Jesus that he knew on the road to Damascus was proclaimed. That's what mattered to Paul. And beloved, too many personal relational conflicts become what we are consumed with. Amen? We are running around lighting fires, and we don't see in this man a man who is so focused on how others hurt him. He's focused on Jesus Christ alone. See? That's a perspective we need to have in our relationships, in the challenging relationships that we have. It is all of, it's not about you. It's about Christ being exalted and in and through you in the way that you love and you forgive the brethren. Amen? Do we take things personal, taking matters into our own hands, run around picking a bone with everyone who hurts us? If we are holding grudges and under, there exist unresolved, petty conflicts with one another that we have not resolved, Beloved, we are giving evidence that the gospel is not our main focus. We are not exalting Christ. Until we learn, like Paul, to subordinate personal interests, even the wrongs that others commit against us, to the greater cause of the gospel, and confess, repent, and forgive one another, as our humble Jesus has done for us, we have yet to see, listen, we have yet to see the bulwark, the city on a hill, that Calvary Bible Church can be in this community for the exaltation of Jesus. The gospel must be central in our dealings with one another. It must be. By God's grace, beloved, we need to have a Christ-exalting perspective amidst difficult circumstances we are experiencing and amidst the challenging relationships that we have with one another, that Christ would be our focus so that we keep the greater, grander purposes of God and His gospel as the focus of life and ministry. I can think of no greater example that we find in the Bible of a man who understood the greater purposes of God than Joseph. Remember Joseph? sold by his own brothers to slavery, suffers injustice, winds up in Egypt, suffered tremendously there. Eventually he does find favor in the eyes of Pharaoh, but he suffered tremendously, unjustly. Joseph could have questioned God's goodness, God's justice, God's wisdom in allowing him to go through the circumstances. He could have done that. Devastating circumstances. He could have taken things personally, even with his brothers for treating him the way they did years before. He could have done that, but he did not blame God for his circumstances or take things personally in his relationship with his brothers. After Jacob dies, you might remember what, he, what happens in Genesis 50. Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers get afraid. Now it's going down. Our father's dead, our brother's coming after us, justice is going to be rendered. And what does Joseph say in Genesis 50 verse 19? Listen to this. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. Here's the big picture, big perspective. In order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And a few verses down, it says, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Amazing. He, Joseph saw the big picture in that God had ordained cir the circumstances of his life and even the conflict with his own brothers to carry out a key part of his redemptive purpose for his people. Amazing. The promises that Yahweh, the one true God, had made to the nation that would ultimately come to fruition in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What an amazing perspective. Joseph realized that at the end of the day, things were not to be taken personal, right? God had orchestrated the events of Joseph's life, including his relationship with his brothers, to accomplish his purposes here on the earth, beloved. Amazing perspective. May God help us amidst difficult circumstances and challenging relationships to strive together for a gospel-focused, Christ-exalting perspective that keeps the advancement of the gospel as the focal point in all that we do individually, beloved, and as a corporate body. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your Son, the exalted one. We thank you that we have a privilege of serving him here on this earth, preaching Christ so that sinners might be converted, that sinners might be confronted with their only hope. And we have a privilege of building into one another to edify and build up one another. Help us to do this, Father. Help us to have a gospel-focused, Christ-exalting perspective in everything that we do for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.